Awesome. Well, it's an honor to be with the Newbridge IHOP family tonight. It's been, gosh, probably over a year since I preached on a Sunday night. And so I'm just going to give a year's worth of content in the next 40 minutes. You guys ready? Everything that I've learned since last time. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that tonight. We actually have a very specific subject that we're going to hit tonight. And if you've been following with what God's been doing in our community over the past year, you know that Sunday nights has been an incredible time of encounter. It's been a time when we've been gathering to worship and we've had a discernment team that's been seeking God's face for what we should be doing every evening. And we've done that format since January, right? When we first kind of felt the Lord leading that way. And it has been a very special time. But recently we felt God redirecting us to do something different on Sunday nights. And it's still going to be a powerful time of encounter, but we really want to give short series that are intended to drive home the messages needed for the house of prayer to fuel our life and intercession and intimacy with God. And we are going to be doing this first series talking about living an undistracted life in a world of increasing distraction. And it was about a week and a half ago and the Holy Spirit just nudged my heart. He said, my people are, are struggling with the issue of distraction. And I want you to begin to teach and preach into that particular challenge. So we're going to open up this series. I'm going to preach tonight and next week. And then the third part in the series, our very own David Bryant. If you know David, he's an amazing communicator. He'll do week three in this series. And then we'll be back with our uh, with Billy the night before our global bridegroom fast, where we're encouraging everyone who's connected to the house of prayer to gather together for these house of prayer focused messages on the Sunday night before our global bridegroom fast. And if you aren't familiar with what our global bridegroom fast is, it's the first Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of Every month we gather together, we fast, we pray, and we do corporate prayer meetings to kick off our month together. And so we're going to actually be beginning that season of fasting and prayer with our Sunday night service. So you don't want to miss that. That's going to be coming up in a few weeks, and we're going to be doing that for the duration of the year. So that's just a little bit of information about what we're doing with Sunday nights, and I feel like it's going to be a very special time of encounter. Amen. Dustin, thank you for uh, praying for us. Esmeralda, I think they're back in the back. But wasn't that awesome worship? tonight. Man, they really ushered us into the presence of God. I, it's not hard to preach after a time like that. Honestly, the worst part is you get up here and you're like, man, how do I follow that time? Because <laughs> they so beautifully brought us into the presence of the Lord. But I remember one of my mentors was talking to me about preaching and he said, you know, you always have to remember preaching is not primarily first to the people, but it's first to our Father in heaven. And that preaching can in fact be worship. And so what I want us to do is I actually want us in this time in the instruction in the word to actually maintain that same spirit of worship. And I feel like a lot of times people come to preaching and teaching with the expectation that the words that I would speak are what are gonna produce an impact in your life, but it doesn't say blessed are the ones who hear, it's blessed are the ones who hear and do, right? And so what I wanna give you is I wanna give you some things that I believe are from the heart of God for you tonight, some things that are prophetic and pertinent to the times that we're living in, and then I wanna charge you by the power of the Holy Spirit to go out from this place and do something different with your life. That's where the power of the word of God is. And I just like all of us to agree right now in prayer for that impact to be made, for you to hear something tonight and then for you to go and do something different in your life when you walk out the door. Can we agree for that in prayer right now? Amen. Let's actually stand to our feet together and do that. Father, we come right now and we agree that this atmosphere is open and that the presence of the Holy Spirit, the great teacher, is here. And I pray, God, that I would speak as an oracle tonight. I pray, Lord, that the anointing of truth would rest upon not just me as the speaker, but us as the hearers, and that we would hear from heaven, and that the gift, the blessedness of building our house upon the rock, being those who do and hear the word of God, would be upon us, Lord. That we would be a church, that it is distinguishable that we not only hear the word, but we do the word, God. I pray it would be evident, Lord, in our speech. It would be evident in our kindness and love towards one another. It would be evident in our giving. Lord, I pray that we would be those who in every way manifest the word in our lives, and we need grace for that, Jesus. I'm teaching things tonight, Jesus, that I have not yet mastered in my life, but I pray as I teach them and instruct others, you would release a blessing on my life, a blessing on my family, a blessing on each and every person in here, that we would be more like Jesus because of this time together. You can do it, God. So we agree, and we say do it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So you have to excuse me, I might be packing a little extra punch tonight. I went to a leadership conference this week with uh, Bishop Dale Bronner. It was a capacity conference down at Word of Faith, if you're familiar with that church. And uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes was there as well. And can I tell you, on Thursday night, Bishop T.D. Jakes, he preached for an hour and 22 minutes. And the last 45 minutes, the whole room was on its feet. I mean, it was an incredible display of preaching acumen. And I was probably on the fourth or fifth row. And he was just, he came down off the pulpit. I don't even know if I can do that in this room. But he was letting us have it from the, from the, from the floor. And he released the fire on us. And I think I got a little bit of that in my spirit tonight. So would it be all right if I just kind of released what I have in me from being in the presence of those men of God? Would you guys be okay with that? I'm sure you wouldn't mind, but, um, but I'm just warning you that, uh, that I, I feel a tremble in my spirit as I consider what I have to say. And I I don't want to delay anymore. I'm going to get right to it. I feel like the first issue in beginning to talk about living undistracted is truly defining the problem. So I'm going to do it in very simple terms. And, you know, a picture speaks a thousand words. And especially in this millennial and Gen Z generation, we're beginning to communicate more with images than we even do with words. Whether it be emojis or Instagram, the visual matters as much as what you say, right? So I want to give us a few visuals that I think describe the problem. So presently in our cultural times, this is how we spend time in nature. Go ahead and put that up. There we go. That's a little quality time in nature, right? Just taking in, taking in the glories of God's creation. All right, and here's an image of some friends having quality time together. There you go, over coffee, just enjoying some good time together. How about a romantic moment? There's romantic, there she is, just enjoying that romantic moment with the love of her life. How about the Sunday drive to church? This is our Sunday, there it is, Sunday drive to church. That's, that's a real image from my life back when I had a goatee. No, not really. And how about family dinner, this last one? There's the family dinner, okay. And, you know, I showed these images to some of our sound people, and they looked at it, and they go, they were laughing. We were joking around, and they said, you know, it's funny, but it's also a little too true, isn't it? And I'm not trying to put any shame or condemnation on anybody in this room, but we see ourselves in some of these images, right? There's been times that we've seen something so beautiful, we go, I've just got to put that on my Instagram, right? <laughs> there are moments where, <laughs> where we know we sit, we sit down with friends, but immediately we actually end up talking more to people that are not present in the room with us than the people we're seated with, right? And one of the advantages of the technological world that we live in, it's such a blessing in many respects, is that we are more connected than we've ever been before. I was talking to my friend Chris, who three weeks ago he moved to Kenya, and I was able to just push a button and FaceTime with him in his apartment in Kenya. And that was awesome, right? Technology can be a huge blessing. But the downside is in the midst of this greater interconnectedness, more and more people find themselves more and more alone. And though they're able to perhaps have a conversation by, by text message, they can't hold a conversation face-to-face with a person. And they actually are finding it's more difficult for me to share intimate things in a normal human interaction than it is for me to share those things with the distance and separation that technology affords. And so much like with money, we see that technology and money, though money is not evil, the love of money can become evil and the addiction to money can become evil. In the same way, technology oftentimes, though it has allowed greater global access to the Bible than has ever existed before in human history, we also see that there's greater access to all manner of perversion and wickedness and a greater amplification of the distortion of the human soul. And this should be expected because the Bible tells us plainly that in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves and that wickedness will increase and people will run to and fro throughout the earth. And so I feel like we've identified some of these things related to distraction. We resonate with us. We know that this is an issue. You're probably here perhaps because you saw the topic and you said, that's something that I need help with. How do I overcome distraction in an increasingly distracted time in history? One other very interesting statistic 
is that human beings recently, a study was done by Microsoft, and they found that our attention span is, wait, what was I saying? Where am I? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm back. Okay. No, our attention span has been reduced from when they did this study in 2000. It was 12 seconds. Now the human attention span, the the amount of time that we spend on a single thought focused on average is eight seconds. There's a small creature that actually has an attention span of nine seconds. Put up my friend Goldie. There's Goldie. Goldie has an attention span. A goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. But presently, since 2000, over the last 18 years, human attention span has dropped from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. Much, many point to uh, the reason for that being the increase of technology. Yankalovich, go ahead and put that next slide up. A market research firm that estimates a person living in a city 30, 30 years ago saw up to 2,000 ad messages a day. If you live in a city today, on average, you see 5,000 advertising messages. The top left picture is uh, the back of a taxi cab. The right is actually where advertisements were put on eggs by CBS advertising their TV shows. This is a doctor's office, and those are the turnstiles at a subway. And so the point being, even when you're having breakfast in the morning, CBS is trying to advertise their television (laughs) programs to you. And we all know that this is the reality. We are being inundated with messages and many times because of our use of technology and also the creativity and the ability of very sophisticated marketers, they are pushing past our boundaries in creative ways to touch the deepest parts of our souls with music, with imagery, with all all manner of advertising that strikes at our deepest longings in order to manipulate us to buy their products, right? And we have to, in this increasingly technologically advanced time where there's more and more messages and more and more communication coming our way, we have to be able to filter by the power of the Holy Spirit what touches our mind and touches our soul. And if you're not receiving the proper inputs, you're going to be receptive to the messages that the world wants to tell you. So we are constantly being stimulated, and this constant stimulation is leading to increased distraction. It poses a threat to our ability to connect with one another, to connect with our own hearts, and ultimately to connect with God. Because unless we have real intimacy with one another, within our own selves, and with God, we cannot obey the first and greatest commandment. A person that is living disconnected from their own family because they fear intimacy is not going to obey the first and greatest commandment. A person who is living disconnected from their heart and a distracted life is not going to take time to get to know their neighbor, much less love their neighbor. A person who is constantly inundated on messages that drive us towards conspicuous consumption and materialism is not going to take the time to love the poor, much less their enemy. And so we have to acknowledge that in an increasingly inundated time in our history, we have to be intentional to filter and consider what am I giving my time, my attention, my ears, and my eyes to. And I'm here to say to you guys that I am not someone who has mastered this or speak on this subject in any area of mastery. I speak of it as a, from a person who finds myself very vulnerable to the times that we live in and desperately in need of the message I'm sharing tonight. I almost feel like I should pray for us again right there because the problem feels weighty, doesn't it? But thankfully, we are going to get to the remedy. So how do we recover our ability to focus, to pay attention and to ultimately connect more deeply with God and each other. So I believe the scripture actually has powerful ideas that speak to this precise problem that we have in our culture right now. And it can show us how to live a more focused life. I wanna share a little bit of my personal story because this is something, as I said, I'm coming today as someone desperately in need. And it's something that throughout the history of my life, the issue of attention has been very critical to me. Uh, You wouldn't know this from having a conversation with me. Most people express skepticism when I share this part of my story um, because I'm a very uh, articulate person who likes words and have been since I was very young. I was uh, nine months old when I first began speaking in sentences and my mom said I started talking and I wasn't, I never shut my mouth since. And she said, you're either gonna be a preacher or a lawyer. And uh, and that I think that turned out the better of the two, you know, (laughs) no shade on preachers. And, um, or no shade on lawyers. 
So, um, so I began talking, I was very verbal, but when I went in to get tested in kindergarten, they found that I had uh, trouble with, uh, with spelling, learning to spell, and I would reverse letters, and I would reverse sentence structures, and I would misplace things and, uh, in, in grammar and, and in the process of reading, so they diagnosed me with dyslexia. And then uh, they also said that I had attention and focusing problems, so they diagnosed me with attention deficit disorder. And then I had a lot of energy and was bouncing off the wall, and they diagnosed me with hyperactive disorder. So attention deficit hyperactive disorder with dyslexia. And so I got diagnosed with that when I was five years old, and I was moved to a special school, and I went to that special school for three years, and I first learned to read in third grade. And it's interesting watching my daughter, who uh, has an incredible focus and doesn't have any learning disabilities or problems, because she's able to read entire books, when in third grade, I was still trying to learn to read sentences and learn to write. And so this created an incredible sensitivity in me. It created shame in me uh, around these, these learning disabilities. I also had to take special medication. Uh, first I was on Ritalin, which many people who grew up in the 2000s and the 90s are familiar with Ritalin, and then Concerta and Adderall, and so through the entirety until I graduated as a senior from high school, I would take medication at lunchtime. Some of the medications affected me more profoundly than others. And if you're familiar with ADHD, it has to do with the serotonin receptors in your brain not properly regulating your amounts of serotonin. Serotonin is an important chemical in your brain that allows you to have the ability to concentrate. And so one of the things that's distinctive about my personality is I'll have lots of thoughts and ideas and talk a lot, have a lot of energy, and I've learned to control that and harness that power for positive purposes and that part of my personality as an adult. But as a child, they just diagnosed it as a disorder, labeled me, and then medicated it to try and control it. And that medication was very helpful in allowing me to concentrate, but it also created all kinds of other side effects, like my appetite was suppressed. So I literally did not eat lunch the entirety of my, of my middle school, high school, because my appetite was suppressed from these medications. And I would take two dosages a day, one in the morning, I'd have to go to the nurse to take another dosage later in the day. And um, I'm very comfortable talking in front of people. I'm not self-conscious. When I took medications that affected my serotonin, my hands would get sweaty in front of people. My body would physically react differently to talking in front of people. I would go from being a person that was very vocal and comfortable in front of a group to someone who was very shy and, uh, and self kind of uh, the, the way the medicine affected me and it made me very internal uh, as a processor instead of external. So it's amazing how chemicals affect our brain, isn't it? And I notice people around the room kind of nodding their heads as I tell my story because maybe some of you find yourself in that same story. And so as someone who is diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, the issue of distraction and my ability to have attention has been a lifelong struggle. And then as I became a Christian and sought to memorize scripture and memorize portions of the Bible, some of those same issues that presented challenges in learning to read and in learning to communicate, I was literally for most of my education the last person to finish tests and exams. I still have anxiety around having to focus and concentrate on things that are sequenced and I'm having to recall information in a sequenced way. Now get me up in front of people and I can talk to them for an hour and a half, no problem, right off the top of my head. But ask me to sit and answer and fill in blank questions on things I've had to memorize, especially language and math, and oh my goodness, I'll have practically a panic attack. So. That's a little bit of my story, and it highlights something that is prevalent across our culture. And I think a lot of the attention issues that I had came out of partly upbringing, partly physiological, and partly, uh, and partly uh, the medication that I was put on. And, and those things as a package created an impact even on my self-image. And so just as an aside, as I was praying through this and wanting to share on how the struggle of attention has deeply affected my life, I want to say to anyone in this room that's been diagnosed with a learning disability or even felt intellectually deficient, that there are ways in which all of us struggle. Some of us are physically stronger. Some of us are mentally stronger. Some of us may have a physical handicap or a mental handicap or a processing handicap. But wherever and, and whoever you are in that journey, however you're believing God for healing or transformation, wherever you are, I want you to know that God loves you. And that was a really powerful thing for me to learn. It was actually a really critical thing for me to learn because we're all on a journey to mental, emotional, physical wholeness in various ways, right? But the question is not am I gonna get better or not? Is my life gonna change or not? Am I gonna be strong in this area or am I gonna remain weak? The issue is how does God feel about you in the midst of your weakness? And one of the beautiful things about the gospel is it never requires us to do anything to receive God's love. 
And as we talk about overcoming issues of distraction, overcoming hurdles in our life, and we throw up the image of, of our family, and we see how, oh, I might see myself in one of those pictures, maybe distracted at the dinner table or distracted in some aspect of my life, and I, and I immediately feel an acute sense of I'm shameful because I'm not meeting the standard of what this preacher is saying, or what the church is saying, or what the Bible is saying. And what I want to say to you is let's not be ashamed, let's be convicted, Let's not, be, let's not be discouraged, let's be invited. And let's know in the midst of our transformational journeys, we can be 100% confident that there is a God who is radically in love with us in the midst of our journey of spiritual formation. And it's actually the power of God's love and grace that enables us to change. And I know for so long, especially as a young child, just so desperately wanting my mind to work different so I could do better. And in the midst of that, I started to hate the way my mind worked. Why isn't it faster? Why can't I recall things clearer? Why am I not able to do what other people are able to do? And I think any of us that have ever struggled with any kind of deficiency or disability can resonate. There are times when you hate the weakness of your own human frame. But God doesn't hate it. God made you that way. Now, I believe God didn't put sickness and disease in the earth as a curse to us. We inherited that through sin. But the reality is that God did put you in a human body with frailty and weakness, and that's inescapable, beloved. And that frailty and weakness is actually what, learnt, what instructs us to lean on God in dependency. So as we consider how can we sharpen our hearts and minds to be more focused on doing the will of God, that is a glorious aspiration, but in the midst of it, we should be confident that God is not looking down on us saying, son, you gotta do better because you're distracted. And it's not gonna do any of us any good to kick ourselves in the shin and say, giddy up, you gotta go a little faster, get a little better, do it a little stronger, do it a little harder, and then God's gonna love you. Because that's ultimately not how he feels about any of us in our weakness. In Song of Solomon, I believe it's chapter one, the bride in that story says of her beloved, though I am dark, I am lovely to him. And we can have such peace, beloved, that even in whatever weaknesses may be identified through this message today, God loves you completely. And it's that love that gives us the ability to conquer any distraction. Amen. All right, so though there are many wonderful skills related to how we can practice and focus, and there are tons of books, there's a wonderful series that Mike Bickle has preached, the preacher out in uh, IHOP, Kansas City, on living a focused life. And I've done that series and tried his techniques and failed them about a half dozen times, right? And there are New Year's resolutions that we set concerning, I'm gonna focus on exercise, or I'm gonna read a book a week, or I'm gonna manage my time, or I'm gonna budget things differently. And there are all these different endeavors that we do and reread a book or listen to a teacher I think some in our community are even going to go to a, a maximizing uh, your efficiency seminar this next week, all about eliminating margin. And there are a lot of really good techniques that you can learn. And I'm going to talk about some of the most powerful techniques I've learned next week. So you got to come for that if that's what you're expecting. But I want to highlight this very simple principle and then in three points uh, elucidate that point, okay? And the principle is found from one of my favorite passages on focus. And here in the House of Prayer, we love this passage, right? Maybe you can say it with me. Psalm 27, verse 4, it says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, and this one thing I'll seek. And if we could throw it up on the screen if you're able to, Matthew. One thing I desire of the Lord and this one thing I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to inquire in his temple and to gaze upon his beauty. And so that's a beautiful description. Do you know that when David writes that, he says, though armies encamp against me and surround me, I will not be afraid, right? The Lord, he is my light and my salvation. And you know, when you read that, many times in the house of prayer, the word that we strike on, it's, it's the name of the conference in the house of prayer in Kansas City is the phrase, one thing, right? We named internships after it in the prayer movement. We preach tons of messages about it. We talk about Mary of Bethany, how Jesus said that her uh, sitting at his feet and hear his word, the one thing that was needed. Um, Paul in Philippians chapter two, he says, one thing, I does, uh, he says, this is the one thing that I need to know Christ and the power power of his resurrection. And there's just this turn of a phrase around the idea of one thing that is very, very powerful, right? 
But I want to tell you, when I read this verse in preparation for this message, the Lord said the one thing is not what's most important. He said one thing is powerful. The idea of focus and focusing on what's most important is, is powerful. But he said the word I want you to pay attention to, and that is in fact the secret to living a focused life, comes immediately after. One thing I desire. See, because there are many different valuable, quote unquote, one things in the kingdom of God. The one thing of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The one thing of gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. There are a lot of transcendent, wonderful things that we can say if you center your life around these, this cluster of one things, right, then that will produce incredible power and transformation in your life. But it's not enough to just know about the one thing. You actually have to move from knowing about the one thing to desiring it. And can I tell you, many of us, many of us might be very structured, disciplined people, but I honestly think few of us actually do our structured, disciplined practices in the absence of desire. Let me say that to you in a different way. If you decide I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be a gym monkey starting in January and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna ape up bench pressing and exercise, believe me, there is something that you're wanting on the other side of your exercise that is motivating you to bring about that change, Right? It's not enough to just have the vision of what you want. You actually have to live connected to your desire in order to be focused. Said another way, we eliminate distractions by focusing first on our desires. And the issue that I think a lot of times that entertainment, movies, uh, YouTube, Netflix, vegging out on Facebook or Instagram in this increasingly interconnected world and uh, focusing and living our lives vicariously through the images and messages and stories of others is that it connects us artificially to the, to the satisfaction of our deepest desires, but not in a way that's real. And see, the entertainment industry has tapped into the power of human desire and they've used it and manipulated it to get you to buy their products and buy their entertainment, right? So we live in a perpetual place in which our desires are stimulated but not satisfied, right? Where we actually weep more over the connections that we see on a screen than the connections in our own lives. Because there's a certain safety to it because it's artificial. And I'm not haranguing against entertainment. I think entertainment has its place in our lives. What I'm saying is that shouldn't be the primary place in which the satisfaction of your deepest longings are being met. See, romance movies can be emotional pornography. We have to understand, right, that God has put deep longings in us and our ability to live connected to those deepest longings is what actually fuels focus in our lives. Many times when we think about messages we've heard on focusing, removing distractions, they focus on this idea of discipline, but I'm telling you, you'll far, do far more by focusing on desire. So embracing this idea, I want to hit three points related to desire, because immediately when I say live connected to your desire, the question should arise in your heart, what desires? And how do I recognize whether they're good or bad? Because I was desiring a chocolate bar last night, and I don't know if that's the deepest desire you're talking about, but it felt pretty deep to me. So is it the chocolate bar? Is that what you're talking about? Because I can live connected to my desire for chocolate. I don't even like chocolate, but others in our family do. So, so first we have to discern so these are the three points. You can write them down if you're taking notes and then we'll just break them down very briefly. And we're gonna wrap about 6.45 because I wanna leave time for us to receive the ministry of the Lord on this subject. So first we have to discern our desires. We have to purify our desires and then we have to amplify our desires. We have to discern and understand the desires of our heart, purify those desires, or rather let God purify those desires through our journeying with him and then we have to amplify those desires. So point one, I'll say it again, we eliminate distraction by focusing first on desire. We are easily distracted when we get disconnected from what's most important to us. When I sit with young people and they want wisdom on what direction they want to go and uh, the direction that they should go in their life, should I go into ministry, should I marry this person? Oftentimes I start in a place that, uh, that surprises them. I usually start with the question, in my process of discerning with someone, what do you want? 
And I think a lot of times in our Christian journey, we've learned to just suppress what we want. Because when I wasn't saved, what I wanted wasn't godly. Right? It wouldn't have been good for 21-year-old Hazen for someone to say, Hazen, what do you want? And just go do that, right? Because my desires weren't purified yet. But what we do oftentimes is we assume because in a previous version of ourselves, our desires were not purified. That means later in life, they're no longer, there's no legitimacy to the things that we want. And that is the yoke of religion, right? It's the yoke of religion that tells us that every desire that is in our heart is bad. What we actually find in the life of David, for example, is he had desire to build God a house. And that desire didn't come from God, it actually surprised God. When the prophet shows up to David to talk to him about building the house of God, God says, David, what was found in your heart was good. So we have to recognize there is a capacity for creativity within the human heart that is part of how God has created us. And sometimes God initiates with us and other times we initiate with God. But our desires have a legitimate place in our relationship with him. So I often start with the question, what do I want? Now, if I end with that question, we have the key principle of the satanic Bible, which is do what thou willest, right? Jesus in the garden said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. But before you can say that, you have to find out what your will is. You have to understand what you want before you can actually surrender it to God to be purified. And so we have to ask the question, what do I want? And then we have to take that answer in honesty and compare it to what the word of God and the spirit of God says we should want, right? And so we don't end there, but often we have to begin there. So I want you in this room, even just to take a moment right now, we'll take an introvert 30 seconds <laughs> to consider, and I'll be awkwardly silent, just consider for yourself today, what do you most want in the world? What do you most long for? What do you desire? What do you want? If that question scares you, maybe you need to sit with it a while. Because we'll see in a moment, God's not afraid to ask that question. He's not scared of your desires. You might even find if you take those desires and sit with him, he's the one that put them there. So I ask you today, beloved of the Lord, what do you want? What do you desire? Now, as I said, we don't stop there. We have to consider how we purify our desires. Now, when I examine a desire, I will go, this desire that is in me, is it a spirit-wrought desire and how does this desire fit in the ultimate plan of God for my life? Where is it that this desire will get met, right? Um, I remember uh, going to family members' homes, and my family members are, are affluent people, and they have really beautiful, large homes. And then coming back to my house and feeling at times, and I'm sure I'm the only one who's ever felt this way, you know, but feeling a sense of inadequacy about my possessions or my home. Is it okay if the preacher is just real for a minute? Maybe a little bit of covetousness in my soul about someone's car that was nice or someone's house that was nice. And I took that, I recognized, man, there's something that I'm wanting and I'm further, so I'm asking myself the question, what do I want? And I'm far enough along in Christ to recognize, well, I don't want to go chasing after a bigger house because that's not going to satisfy me, right? Ultimately, that's not, I know that that's not going to satisfy me because I've pursued such things in my life and I found it completely wanting. But yet there's still something in me that longs. And I was like, what is the thing in me that's longing? And I felt like God said, the thing that you're longing for is beauty. And he said, that's not a bad desire. The thing that I'm longing for was, one of the things I was longing for is order and rest, right? And in discerning that desire, I recognized, oh, part of what, the, there's some mixture in it. My desire needs to be purified, but what I'm actually longing for, I can actually have in my relationship with God. And that's not a bad thing to have a beautiful, restful. And God said to me, no, that's not a bad thing at all. That's actually what the human heart longs for in the Garden of Eden. He said, you're longing for Eden. 
and you're longing for your heavenly mansion. And he goes, mansions aren't bad. There are lots of mansions in heaven. And there are people that God has blessed with prosperity in this life and, and have homes that are a blessing. They utilize those homes to be a blessing to others and to do the work of the kingdom of God. And if you're one of those people, God bless you, right? But I believe those things, whether it's riches, whatever station God has put you in life, God orders those things, right? But now in response to what God has given you, what are your longings, what are your desires, and how does God want to meet them? And see, what I found was something that was driving me in covetousness and causing an agitation in my life. When I identified the right desire, it focused me in intimacy in my relationship with God. And so I began to pray, God, show me how to beautify my home. And we began to do little projects around our house that brought great satisfaction to my soul. And you know, that's, that's not carnal, that's actually intimacy with God. And now when something gets completed in my home, that's a project that I prayed about and I've done. And I'm not trying to make everything hyper-spiritual. I'm just telling you the practicals of my relationship with God is that from the place of desire to fulfillment, I've seen him carry that through in small ways that draws me closer to him and makes me thankful for him. And the things that were rubbing me the wrong way that I was trying to push down when I identified the right desire, it actually became a transformed place of energy and, and makes my wife a much happier woman. And so it's bearing good fruit in our lives. <laughs> Because that honeydew list gets shorter and shorter, right? Do you guys hear what I'm saying? Does that make sense? So we have to identify our desires by asking the question, what do we want? But then when we hear what we want, we have to take that desire and offer it in God's presence to be purified. And the most powerful desires within us are ultimately the most transcendent. I'll say that again. The most powerful desires in us are the most transcendent. And if you want to read a, a great book on this, The Seven Longings of the Human Heart is a book Mike Bickle wrote on the seven longings of the human heart. These are just a good example. These, this isn't a comprehensive list, um, but it may be encouraging for you if you go, I don't know where to start even considering what my deepest desires would be. So the seven that he identifies is the human heart longs to be enjoyed. The human heart longs to be enjoyed. And I'll just do these very quickly because I'm not gonna take time to expound on them. But the human heart longs to be fascinated, to be fascinated. Often in issues of purity, the church has preached for a long time abstinence from all things immoral, but it has not preached to satisfy those deep longings in pleasure with God or in the intimacy of our unions. Our souls long for beauty, so enjoyment, fascination, beauty. We long for greatness. Now, God defines greatness as those who are willing to take the lowest place. So can you define greatness in the same way that God defines greatness and ultimately take that place? But God doesn't say when his disciples come to him and say, we want to be great. He doesn't go, no, being great is terrible, right? He actually feeds their desire for greatness and goes, here's what you do if you want to be great. Because the first in this life will be great in the next kingdom. So if you want to be, if you want to be great, take the lowest place. And if we actually believed that would lead to greatness in eternity, if we could see the reward that we're going to get for every act of humility that we've ever done, we would do way more acts of humility. If we could see it, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that, I'm saying that we are right, should be righteously self-interested. We should look at that and go, I want more radiance and glory, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give more money. I want my mansion in heaven to be bigger. I want more guests to acknowledge my transformation in their lives in eternity. It says that those in this age are wise with mammon, right? But the sons of this age are not wise with mammon because we don't recognize that what we do with it in this life is going to have continuity in eternity. And if we did, we would be wiser in it. We'd store up the things that would be lost in this age in eternity by being more generous and giving more radically. So greatness, we long for greatness. We long for intimacy. We long to be wholehearted. Another way you can say this is to come through. One of the greatest longings that I've found in my own heart is the, is the desire to come through, to complete something, to finish something, to give it my all. It's what draws so many people to, to sports and to athletics is there's a set time in which I can go and do something and give my all. And when you've given your all, it's such a satisfying feeling to have left it all in the field, isn't it? There's something in us that longs for that. I think that's a taste of what we're going to get in eternity when we stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul said, I run this race with endurance that I might not be disqualified. I cut away everything that entangles me so that I might stand before the Lord in glory, receive my crown, right? To be wholehearted and to come through. 
to hear well done. And then lastly, deep and lasting impact. So enjoyed, fascinated, beauty, greatness, intimacy, wholehearted, deep and lasting impact. I think many times the deepest longings of our heart at the root of them are these deep spiritual longings that God has put in us. And because God has put in them in us, they will, the more we try and clamp down on them and suppress them and control them, the more they're gonna push out and try and find distorted manifestation in our lives. And so what I've found is instead of saying, ooh, it's bad, shame on me for wanting greatness, let's redefine greatness by what the Bible says is great. Oh, shame on me for wanting beauty. No, let's redefine what beauty is in a healthy way in my life, right? And so when we begin to tap into the power of greatness and beauty, you'll find your life energized with a force that's far greater than any discipline you can externally impose upon yourself. And I wasn't the first one to say such things. C.S. Lewis actually writes this and says, if we consider, this is in weight of glory, many of you may have heard this quote, if we consider the unblemished promises of, of reward and staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offering of a holiday at the sea. Ultimately, says C.S. Lewis, we are far too easily pleased. What if your deepest desires were awakened? What kind of force and focus would that bring to your life to reach to God and see the world around you changed? Consider the psalmist's yearnings. There is fullness of joy in God's right hand and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 63 says, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land, there's no water. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Does that sound like the longings of your heart? And have you unbridled those longings and directed them to God? So we discern what our deepest longings are, right? We invite God to purify them by offering them to him in his presence. And the last thing I want to invite you to is to amplify those longings. And this is something we have very little control over. But I want to propose to you that God gives us opportunities for our desires to be amplified. And if we respond to those opportunities, it'll have a transformational effect on our lives. So the opportunities that I'm describing are the opportunities of your life to go through suffering, wilderness, and trials. Because there is no greater place, and we'll do an altar ministry time to invite you into that season as soon as this is done teaching. Because there's no greater place that desire is amplified than in the wilderness. See, it's not until you've found what you're willing to actually die for that you discover something worth living for. See, it's in the wilderness that God purifies the desires of his messengers. Could John the Baptist have become the prophet he was called to be living in a king's palace? No, he had to suffer in order to discover what he really yearned for, which was the appearing of the Son of Man. And he was willing to live a life of, uh, of, of camel's hair and locusts in the wilderness and in the desert because he was, he was deeply connected to a greater desire, which is that his heart leapt at the sound of the bridegroom's voice. And so when everything was stripped away from him again and the crowds were all gone and he went back to just being John in the wilderness and his disciples said, well, here's the problem, John. Jesus is taking away. All he goes, no, 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 it's never about me. It was about me rejoicing at the voice of the bridegroom. And so he must become great and I must become less. See, he was living connected to his desires, alive in desire because the wilderness had purified him. He connected to what he really wanted. John, what do you really want? I want to be a voice in the wilderness. I want to prepare the way of the Lord. Was that what God created you for, John? Yes. So are you willing to be that in good times and bad times in front of the crowds or alone? Are you willing to do it in fasting or in plenty? Are you willing to do it when everybody's applauding you or when you're being shamed? See, it's not until you suffer for something you're longing for that you really discover that you really want it. And I, I remember our five years that my wife and I were in the night watch, just leading 
at times, you know, a dozen people. Towards the end of our time, it, it got all the way down to my wife, myself, and one other person responsible for, you know, however many hours of prayer that is, like six times seven, so whatever that is, 42 hours of prayer, and making sure that the worship continued to happen and the fire didn't go out. And I'm so grateful for that season. I'm so grateful for that season because I can stand here before you and say one thing I desired of the Lord. This one thing I'll seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord all the day. I want it more than anything because my desire has been tested in the wilderness. And do you know in that place where everything else was stripped from you, the desire of your heart only grows stronger when it's founded in God. See, the wilderness amplifies your desire like nothing else. And if you'll give yourself to the purgation of the wilderness, the purifying force of the wilderness in your spiritual journey, when a trial hits and you go, God, I'm willing to stick to what I want because it's worth it. It's worth it in you, even if it costs me everything in the natural. See, that's, that's when a person dies, you find out what, what in my life matters and what really doesn't. Right? When a family member gets sick and you have to enter into that sickness and care for them, you find out in your life what really matters and what doesn't. And a lot of times we just view those hardships as, God, I can't wait for this to be over. But what if we actually looked at it and said, this is for the testing of my faith, that I would be mature and complete and perfect, lacking nothing. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hallelujah, right? The voice thunders from heaven in Mark 1.11. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now he's ready to begin ministry, right? He's ready to ascend to the highest platform to do all the miracles and the wonders of Messiah and lead the children of Israel as a deliverer. So immediately after he hears those words, oh, wait a second, the spirit drives him into the wilderness for 40 days of testing and trial. Because God wanted to know, right, what do you really want, Jesus? And it says the devil left him in that time of testing at the beginning of his ministry, and he visits him again. And we're talking about Luciferian temptation, the devil himself against the Son of God. Jesus resists his first two, temp three temptations. He says, Satan, get behind me. Satan tries to tempt him to worship, tries to tempt him to take the glory of creation, tries to tempt him to eat food and satisfy the lusts of his flesh, to amplify himself before. But because of Jesus' suffering in the wilderness, he knew what he wanted in the moment of temptation. And what did he want? He wanted to worship his father alone. He knew what he wanted because of the testing, right? And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Satan visits him again after three years of difficulty, adversity, trial. He knew what he wanted. He said, Father, if there's any way to take this cup from me, take it from me. I don't want to suffer, right? I want relief. But more than I want relief or comfort, Father, I want your will. Father, I want your glory, right? What it means to be a mature man or woman of God is to know your deepest desires, to offer those deepest desires to God to be purified, and to ultimately be willing to die for those deepest desires so that they might be enter the tomb of, of uh, enter the tomb, <laughs> enter the place of crucifixion on Friday, the tomb on Saturday, that they might be resurrected again on Sunday. Romans 12, 1, therefore... Uh, we quote this verse too often, it loses our impact. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And sometimes I think in, in our charismatic mentalities, what we think it means to be offer a living sacrifice is, oh God, I'm going to praise you with a loud voice, right? That's what it means. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, like dance before the Lord. And what I think it means when you say offer your body as a living sacrifice means be willing to resist temptation to the point of suffering and discomfort and agony in your soul. Have you ever seen an animal sacrifice it's bloody and messy it's bloody and messy and involves suffering have you ever heard an animal killed it's not well, animals that don't make noises deer and rabbits they're quiet all there but when that animal died screams out in pain and in agony beloved offer yourself as a living sacrifice to be slaughtered in your flesh that you might be dead with Christ, that you die with him to your flesh, that you might be consumed by his fire and raised in his glory. All right, I'm a little past my time. Can I just share one last story about desire and we'll close.
Are you guys still with me? Mark 10, 46 through 52, Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. It's one of the most powerful stories demonstrating desire, I think, in all of Scripture. See, Jesus and his disciples are going through Jericho, and as they were leaving, they're followed by a large crowd. And a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, is sitting beside the road. And when he hears that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he begins to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And the picture is of a poor, frail person. Says he's covered in a cloak. He can't see. And he hears the crowd, but he can't get to Jesus because he's blind. But he begins to cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. He calls him by his Davidic and Messianic title. Son of David, have mercy on me. And he's crying out with such importunity and force. that the people told him to shh, be quiet. And I think if we were to prophetically put ourselves into this story, when those desires rise up in us and begin to call out for God, the distractions and the difficulties and the adversities, they try and tame our passion for Jesus and our passion for what's transcendent. And the little things of life begin to eat away at the longing of our heart. And we begin to cry out, son of David, have mercy in an area of our lives. Maybe it's for purity. Maybe it's for beauty. Maybe it's for transformation. Maybe it's for greatness. Maybe it's for impact. Maybe it's for greater intimacy within your, whatever the deep longing of your soul is as you connect with it something even tonight might leap up in you and say son of David I want this and all in that moment the hordes of hell try and close in around you and say because when a child of God gets awakened in their desire and turns that desire towards the throne of God eyes begin to open the lame begin to walk the dead begin to rise and so the devil ha- is afraid of nothing more than a saint who has a cry upon its lips. Son of David, have mercy. The appeal to the throne of God for mercy is one of the most transformational forces in the entire universe. Do you need mercy tonight? Shh, the world would say, the flesh would say, the devil would say. But Jesus, marching down the road, hallelujah, he hears the cry and the cry of the blind man, the beggar in poverty with nothing but the desperate cry for mercy while the crowd throngs him. The cry for mercy by the roadside makes the son of God stop in his tracks. And when he stops in his tracks, he says, bring that man to me. I hear a cry that moves the heart of God and I can't take one step further Because there's a cry from lips that are desperate for something. And I believe the spirit of God is asking the same question that Jesus asked Bartimaeus by the roadside. Jesus looks on this poor desperate man, blind. I think it's pretty obvious what he wanted. But I think Jesus wanted Bartimaeus to know what he wanted. And he asks him this penetrating question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want, Bartimaeus? What do you want? And the blind man answered, Master, I want to see. I want to see. I want to see. I want to see. How long do you think he'd be sitting on that roadside crying, God, I want to see before he heard whispers of a deliverer who could open blind eyes. I wanna see, I wanna see. See, without the wilderness of Bartimaeus' suffering and blindness, he may never have truly knew what he wanted. And Jesus looks on him in his affliction and in his trial, says, you may go, your eyes are healed because of your faith. And it says immediately his blind eyes were opened And he became a, it says he followed Jesus down the road. And can you imagine the excitement as he got to look at all those people who said, shh. 
And he got to give testimony. I can see, I can see. My eyes are open. Jesus opened my eyes. Son of David, he opened my eyes. He had mercy on me. What do you want? And are you willing to lift your voice to have it? Do you want it bad enough? Do you want it bad enough to, to pull on the mercy of God and from the overflow of God's mercy? Pull that mercy down into your life and have something transformational happen to you. If you live distracted and disconnected, Jesus will just pass on by you. Oh, he's not stopping for me today. Did it for others, but I guess not me. No, he knew what he wanted. He knew if he could just get to Jesus. Have mercy, son of David. If he could just get to Jesus, Jesus could give him what his heart longed for. So what do you want tonight? And are you desperate enough for it to go to Jesus to have it? Are you desperate enough to cry out to him and live a life aligned with him and live a life? Because I guarantee you, whatever it is you're longing for, the fullness of it is found in the presence of Jesus. Whether it's beauty or greatness or glory or transformation. You know, I found the deepest longing in my heart. I did a whole coaching module around questions and discovery and prayer. And I, I came to this powerful conclusion for myself. I want to be changed by God. I want to touch God and be changed by him. And that's been one of the most powerful forces in my, whenever I lose focus, I go back to that simple thing. What do I want, God? I want to touch you and be changed. And while I was doing preparation for this message, it's pretty cool. I read 1 Corinthians 15, 52. It says, in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and they will be changed. See, that transformation I'm longing for, I can have a measure of it in this life, but what I'm really longing for is the transformation from flesh to glory, right? And I can taste it, and I'd rather live for that than money, fame, even good things happening in your life. <laughs> I want good things to happen to you, but more than good things happening to you, I want to become like Jesus, I want to be changed in a twinkle of an eye and I want to become like him. And I don't want to wait for that day. I want it now. I want to taste it now. I want it so bad in my spirit. Oh, I can just, I just yearn for it. What do you want in that same way? And if you lock into what you want in that same way and begin to let that force the focus on your life and then distractions break off and confusion breaks off and the muddle of, of purposelessness breaks off. I saw a picture earlier when we were in worship of, of wheels spinning. And I know that there's some in this room and it feels like your life has just been, it's been spinning and it's been tractionless. And I'm telling you tonight, beloved, if you will go back to God and say, God, this is what I want. I offer that desire to you in your presence. And I invite you to amplify that desire through suffering and through the wilderness. I'll go on a journey with you, God, that a cry could come up from my spirit. Son of David, have mercy. Stand with me now, we'll pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you, God, for your presence. We thank you for the Holy Spirit bearing witness to these simple words, God. We thank you for the testimony of those like David and Bartimaeus, a king and a blind man, Lord, each of them human and frail in their own unique ways. One who longed for the beauty of the Lord, to see the beauty of the Lord. <laughs> and behind Bartimaeus, who longed to see the face of the son of David in the flesh. Oh God, we pray, Lord, a blind beggar, hallelujah, and a king, both desiring to see God. We offer, Lord, our eyes to you in this room. We offer the longings of our soul to you in this room. And some of us in this room, God, we're getting in touch with some thing. We're asking ourselves the question again, what do I want? And that desire is awakening God and it's going to propel us into our purpose and our destiny. And I thank you, Father, that there's a fullness coming in people's lives that they've never experienced. A place where their wheels catch in the dirt and begin to propel them forward into greater purpose, Lord. And I thank you that the focus is coming even right now. I take the authority of Jesus of Nazareth, every force of the evil one under the sound of my voice, and I command it to cease and desist, and I 
release the children of God to cast aside their cloaks, to cast aside the things of the flesh and those things that were of their old ways. And beautiful thing about blind Bartimaeus, he threw away his cloak and he didn't go back. I thank you that there are fleshly works that were descriptive and distinguishing of a former way of life. And I thank you that we throw aside those cloaks because in faith we know we're not going to go back. We don't need it anymore. Before he was healed, he left the cloak by the roadside because he knew what was about to happen. And when the world said, shh, he said, no, I'm gonna, have the, I'm gonna stop the son of David in his tracks with my prayers. Can you touch that cry in your own spirit even tonight and begin to lift it before the throne of God? Son of David, have mercy, Lord. In this house, God, we desire a move of your spirit as we've never seen before. Not hype, Lord, not something to get crowds, Lord. No, a true visitation of your glory. That same manifestation, Lord, that dwells in the highest heavens, Lord. That same glory that dwells in the eternal temple. Oh, God, we desire to stand in that glory. We desire to touch heavenly things, God. We desire the spirit of awakening. Awaken us first in the deepest longings of our soul. If you want to find your way forward for prayer, if you want to position yourself in prayer, however suits you, you can stay in your seat and lay down. But let's take a few minutes and cry out to God right now. Son of David. Son of David. Just put that name on your lips. Son of David. Son of David. We come asking for what we want, God. Asking for awakening, God. Asking for something to break forth from within us, oh God. Asking, Father, for lives focused on what is most meaningful and powerful. For that which is eternal in essence and substance. Oh God. Oh God, awaken us, God. Awaken us, God. Awaken the longings of our heart in Jesus' name.